So the problem with a revocable trust, however, or one of the shortcomings of a revocable trust, is it doesn't create any asset protection benefit for you. And the reason why is because it, it's, it's revocable. If I retain the right to undo the trust, right, and everything just comes back to me when I do that, then if I get in trouble, so I get in a car accident, somebody sues me, you know, I can say to a judge, hey, I, Brian Chow, am liable. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Brian Chow. Brian is an asset protection and estate and tax planning attorney and an expert in those areas. And Brian has actually been on the show before on one of the very first episodes. I'm excited to have him back on the show and learn even more about estate and tax planning and potential changes that are coming down the road with all the you know spending bill and all that that's happening. We get into different types of trusts today, both revocable and irrevocable. And frankly, this is an area where I'm not particularly educated on it. And I need to be because this is something that frankly, I need to do, right? I'm personally, I'm into my 30s. I have plenty of real estate investments and other investments, and I need to start on this. And maybe you can relate to that. If you haven't done so, we do address when folks, investors should start thinking about these kinds of things making plans and taking action on estate planning and why, what it can mean for you, what it can mean for your heirs, what it can mean for your assets upon your unfortunate death, which is frankly going to happen to all of us, unfortunately. So we might as well plan for it, especially if we are successful real estate investors or if we're going to be successful real estate investors. I know we have both kinds of folks out there listening today, whether you are a real estate investor with a big portfolio or you're going to be a successful real estate investor someday, start thinking about it, start working on it, talk with an attorney and learn about these things. I learned so much today and I know you will as well. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Like I said, I learned a lot today from Brian and you will as well. If you do learn a lot and you enjoy the show and you're an Apple Podcast user, please take a moment, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank a little bit higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. They get to see that folks are engaging with the content and escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're learning and you're participating in the episodes, you're taking information away and taking action, which is really what is so important if you're going to become a real estate investor, become someone who takes action on whatever your plans are. Go do it. And all I'm asking is for a quick review if you get something out of the episode. No matter what podcast app you use, once again, if you enjoy the show, look the show up, Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Hit the subscribe button on whatever app, uh, app you use. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. We look forward to seeing you right here talking about real estate investing strategies to help you escape the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest is Brian Chow. We're learning about aspects of estate planning, different types of trusts. And I frankly get the opportunity to ask some questions that I had about this that you might have as well. So there's a lot in here. And without further ado, here we go with Brian Chow. Brian, thank you for coming back on the show and joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. It's nice to be back. 
oh man, it's been a few years. You're one of my first interviews for this show and how much, <laughs> you know, how much time has passed. Oh, and how, how far I, we've come. <laughs> I know, man. It's been, I think almost three years. I have to look up the date from the original interview, but uh, I think you had a cold last time. You're over it now. I'm happy to, happy to observe. So uh, for our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you give us a quick intro to you and your practice? Sure. Uh, yeah. So my name is Brian Chow. I am a estate planning and asset protection attorney. So what that means or what I do on a daily basis is I help my clients you know, as they acquire wealth to structure that wealth to make it more difficult for people to sue them and to take those assets away from them. And then ultimately help them to pass those assets on to their loved ones or to charity in a way that minimizes their headaches, uh, minimizes their taxes, and maximizes whatever their legacy goals may be. Awesome. Cool. And I feel like every four to eight years, depending on when you find yourself, we hear about maybe a renewed push to alter estate taxes and you know basically extract more money from dead people by the government. <laughs> Put a little spin on that. What do you, I mean, I, and I think we're starting to hear something like that now again. What do yes. you see if you look in your crystal ball? You know, what are your expectations coming down the road, especially for, you know, real estate investors? Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that's very relevant to probably a lot of your audience as investors, as people who are building wealth. So there's something out there called the estate tax, right? Which is a tax that the government places on your assets when you die. And basically, the way the government works, they say, hey, when you die, we're going to figure out the value of everything that you own and we're going to come up with a number. So whatever that number is, right, we're, that you're passing on to your loved ones is going to be subject to this tax. The current tax rate is 40%. So that's a significant tax if you have to pay it. But the good news is most people don't have to pay it because the government has an exemption amount. So there's a certain amount you can pass on to your loved ones before this tax kicks in. The current amount that you can protect from this tax is $11.7 million dollars per spouse. So if you're a married couple and you pass away with the current law in place, you can pass on between you, you and your spouse roughly $23.5 million, right? So most Americans you know, don't fall into the range where they really have to worry about that, except that exemption isn't permanent, right? That exemption will change. Uh, the rates and the amount that you can protect will change uh, by the whims of Congress. And so currently, uh, there is a $3.5 trillion spending bill, which you may have heard about in the news. And, and part of that is going to be um, right ways to increase taxation to generate money to pay for that $3.5 million or trillion dollar uh, spending package. And so uh, one of the things that uh, is being proposed is a significant reduction of your estate tax exemption. So the amount that you can protect is, is likely to shrink by the end of the year to anywhere between $3.5 million per spouse or on a best case scenario, as we think it'll it'll get cut in half. So it'll go to about six million dollars per spouse. Right. And so for those clients that have, you know, that are that have built significant wealth, that is a big deal. Right. So so we have lots of clients that are either in the process of or considering gifting assets away now so they can get assets out of their estate for the benefit of their spouses or their kids, et cetera, so that they won't be taxable in their estate later on down the line, right? So right now you can give away $11.7 million, right? Come January 1st, likely it's going to be a lot less, right? And so, so the idea is if we give away $11.7 million today and we utilize our exemptions, that money gets out of our state. One, it's not taxable in our state when we die, but then all the future appreciation on those assets also grows outside of our estate. So for example, if I transfer a $10 million commercial property to my wife today, utilizing my exemption, right? 
then what happens is, is that money over the course of, let's say my lifetime, let's say I live for another 45 years, right? That $10 million property could very well be worth 40 or $50 million. And so that full 40 or 50 million, right, can now pass on for the benefit of my spouse or my kids without being subject, right, to that additional, uh, to those additional estate taxes in the event of my passing, which again, at this point is 40%. So that's, that's a significant, you know, that's tens of millions of dollars of estate tax savings by virtue of simple things that we do or relatively simple things that we do today. Nice. Well, I guess my biggest question, maybe it's a naive question in this case, but for real estate investors, especially, are we looking at, you know, equity in these properties or the gross value of them? Because if you have a $10 million property, gee, you might have just a few million dollars worth of equity in that property. You have a loan, maybe 65% LTV or something like that. Yep. Are they looking at the value of the property or the value of your equity? It would be the value of your equity. Okay. Right? At least so we for got estate that. tax purposes. Yes. So, so now, for probate purposes, which is a whole other thing, the costs associated with that are based on the gross value. So, but yeah, for estate tax purposes, the one good thing is they they will it's the, it's your net worth, not your gross value of your assets. So. Mm, okay. Okay. So, I guess how long does that process take? I mean, you're saying that the government goes in, and I, I count myself as very uneducated on these particular topics. I've, I'm hopefully a long time from having to worry about it. But, sure. Uh, so when the government goes and looks at the overall value, I mean, how long does that take? I imagine, especially if you are pushing that, that level where there's a risk that you could be, this could apply to you, that tax could apply to you, that, you know, the bills, legal bills probably get really expensive. Like what's that actual process to go in and evaluate, you know, how much you have. So if you have a taxable estate, so the process is you have nine months from the date of your death or the estate has nine months from the date of your death to report. Uh, or file what's called an estate tax return. So that's basically reporting all the information about the various assets that you have and what they're worth, uh, and then claiming whatever exemptions or uh, are are available to you to figure out how much money actually has to be paid to the government. So it's not a friendly process in the sense that, especially if you have lots of assets, right? Getting those assets valued and figuring out you know what your number is and what's going to be subject to this tax. Right. It doesn't leave you a whole lot of time to do that because it's again because of that nine month deadline. So if they if somebody passes away and they have a few million dollars in a retirement account still left over and then a few million dollars worth of property, and let's assume for the sake of argument that it's going to be over the line, are there any issues with say, you know, uh, it's gonna cost money to hire somebody to do that stuff, right? So is there any issues with I don't know, paying for that attorney out of the retirement account? Like what are the I'm wondering the actual risks there because I can't, for example, you know, I can't personally take advantage or benefit from my self-directed retirement account now that I'm alive. But if I've got heirs who inherit, you know, a a retirement account with a few million dollars in it and then millions of dollars of real estate, are they subject to those same issues, compliance problems that they might have to think about? Does that question make sense? Kind of. I I, I suspect that (laughs) probably wouldn't be, well, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be, I don't know the exact answer because you're you're basically asking, would my beneficiaries have the same conflict of issue, conflict of interest issues if they inherited a self-directed IRA, right? Yeah, exactly. With and they get the IRA plus, you know, a big chunk of real estate. I guess I'm just wondering about the logistics issues of uh, 
dealing with all of that? Yeah, I mean, so that's kind of a technical question that I don't know the exact answer to, but certainly they could take distributions from their inherited IRA and then utilize it to pay pay the bill. But the thing is, from a technical standpoint, it would really be the executor of the estate that would be uh, paying the estate tax bill. So one thing that's Again, from a technical standpoint, right, the the tax is applied to the decedent. So the decedent's assets are utilized to pay the tax. And then once that's done, then the assets are distributed to the beneficiary. So technically, it's not a tax on the beneficiaries. It's a tax on the person who died. Okay. Okay. So what are some ways to, you know, we have the ability to transfer things to our spouses, I guess, what are some ways to kind of you know, protect ourselves, at least as the law stands today, subject to Congress, you know, changing its mind either a couple of months from now or a couple of years from now, what are some you know things we yeah. can do? I mean, in all likelihood, it will be sooner rather than later, most likely <laughs> by the end of the year. But so in a very broad sense, transferring assets now is a great way to reduce your estate tax bill. But there are a host of ways to do that to achieve the various goals that our clients may have, right? So some clients are very charitable minded. So we might use some sort of charitable trust uh, as a way to reduce their estate tax burden. Uh, other clients may want to, to gift assets to their kids. So this is something that's very common, right? Paying for your kids' uh, education, right? Paying, uh, making your $15,000 gift every year to each of your kids, right? Over time, you can get a lot of assets out of your estate. But in a situation like this, where we have a tight timeline, right? We might be making large gifts of millions of dollars of of assets for the benefit of children or or a spouse. And so so usually that will involve an irrevocable trust because if we're giving assets directly to our kids, right, that creates problems, especially if they're minors or if they're not very responsible, right? Then those assets, we could be uh, subjecting them to being used inappropriately or, or the kids just wasting it or or even if the kids are very responsible, let's say they incur liability on their own, maybe one of the kids, a brain surgeon, he gets sued by one of his patients, right? So um, so we may not want to expose those assets uh, to our children's liability, or, and we may not want to expose it to their management, right? Because sometimes, or a lot of times, clients may want to retain control, um, right? So if you're the patriarch or matriarch of the family, you may want to be giving assets away for estate tax purposes, but you may not want to be giving away control. And so one way that we deal with that is we'll utilize um, irrevocable trusts, right? So these are entities whereby the assets that we transfer to this entity, let's say we draft it so that uh, the assets that we transfer to this entity have to be utilized for the benefit of my son, for example, right? So I can start shifting assets into uh, this trust for my son, but he doesn't directly own those assets. Right? So maybe I'm the manager of those assets, or, or maybe I point you, Taylor, as the manager of those assets. And the manager has a legal obligation to utilize those assets for my son's benefit. But as I transfer these assets, right, these assets now get out of my name. They're no longer mine. And again, they're no, so, no longer subject to my liabilities, right? And they're no longer subject to my son's liabilities oh, because nice. the assets are, ha- have to be used for the benefit of my son, but he doesn't directly own them. So now what happens is, one, my son doesn't get control until, let's say, the terms of the trust allow him control, if ever, right? And further, if he gets in trouble, somebody sues him, it's not subject to his creditors. And right, let's say he's going through a divorce, same thing, right? He doesn't own those assets. They're not, they're not commingled with any communal assets that he would have this with his spouse. And so um, so it creates a high degree of asset protection. And then also from a uh, from an estate tax planning point of view, right? Uh, those assets again now grow for the benefit of my son 
uh, without being subject to my estate taxes or my future estate tax in the event of my passing. And furthermore, uh, a significant sum, if not all of those assets, can also grow for the benefit of my son without necessarily adding to his estate tax bill when he passes. Interesting. Okay. So something I've always wondered about revocable versus irrevocable trust or however it's pronounced is like what that actually means. Like who can't it be revoked from by whom? Like I just, that, that the term is something I'm missing out on. Another naive question. Let let me explain that. So, so a revocable trust. So, so for those of your your audience members out there, many of them may have living trust. Many of them may not know what it is at all, but let's just start at the basics, right? right? So, so if you've ever heard of a living trust or you've ever thought of a living trust, usually what you're hearing about is a revocable trust, right? So, um, so this is a trust or a, a, again, an entity, think of it almost like a company, an entity that you create that holds your stuff during the course of your lifetime. And the purpose behind this is we want to allow you as the creator to have control of your life and your finances in the event of your death or incapacity, right? So the problem that the trust solves is this, is most people, when they acquire assets, they acquire assets in their own name. That's the easy way to do it, right? So I buy a house, my name is on the deed, buy a car, my name is on the pink slip, I open up bank accounts, investment accounts, my names are on those accounts. Mm -hmm. So if I own a house, it says Brian Chow on the deed, and I'm the legal owner, I can do whatever I want with it while I'm alive. But in the event of my passing, what happens is Brian Chow has no legal ability or has no actual ability to make any decisions because I'm dead. But according to the documents, right, I'm the only one on title. So I'm the only one with any legal authority. So since nobody else in the world is me, no one else can step in and do anything with that property. It's just sitting there. It's not being lived in. It's not being rented out. It's not being productive. So at that point, it falls to the state to figure out what to do with my stuff. So then we all these assets end up going into probate, which is a court process by which title transfers from somebody who's passed away to wherever it is that those assets should go. And so probate, whenever we go to court, things become a lot more expensive. They take a long time. um, And it's also public. So those are things that three things, three reasons why people generally dislike probate. And so one way that we avoid probate, again, is by putting our assets into this trust, right, a revocable trust, um, which then holds those assets so that when I die, right, Brian Chow, the individual died, but everything's held by the Chow Family Trust, which exists separately from me, right? And within my trust, I had the foresight to appoint successor trustees or vice presidents, right? Because during my lifetime, I'm the president, El Jefe. I then make <laughs> I make all the decisions about what the trust does, buy things, sell things, refinance, right? Uh, remodel the kitchen, et cetera. And then let's say I appoint you, Taylor, as my vice president. If I'm gone, then you would now step up into my place and then you can then carry out the terms of the trust to, let's say, distribute the assets for my kids or manage them until they're a certain age or you know, sell the business or whatever, right? So that's a revocable trust, right? So most trusts that you encounter are revocable, which means that you retain the right as the creator, the creator retains the right to make changes to the trust up to and including completely getting rid of the trust. Hmm. And so the the purpose there is to make the trust really user-friendly, right? So I get married, okay, I can add people in, my kids grow up, maybe they marry somebody that I don't really like, you know, I can write them out, right? I can... (laughs) I can, uh, the tax laws change, I can always make adjustments. So the problem with a revocable trust, however, or one of the shortcomings of a revocable trust is it doesn't create any asset protection benefit for you. And the reason why is because it's it's revocable. If I retain the right to undo the trust, right? And everything just comes back to me when I do that, 
then if I get in trouble, so I get in a car accident, somebody sues me, you know, I can say to a judge, hey, I, Brian Chow, am liable. Everything I own is held in the Chow Family Trust, so I don't actually own anything. So do I have any liability? <laughs> I don't have any assets, so I have nothing to pay uh, my creditor, right? Well, a judge is going to say, well, well, Brian, I see that you've got this Chow Family Trust over here, and it's revocable. So you can undo the trust and pull the assets back into your name. I'm going to compel you to do that. So for that reason, your revocable trust doesn't create a whole lot of asset protection. Mm, okay. But a irrevocable trust is a trust where you do not have the ability to unilaterally undo the trust. And so uh, so for that reason, when I give away assets to an irrevocable trust, let's say for the benefit of my, my son or my spouse or even myself in many cases, right? what happens is if I get sued, I can't be compelled to pull those assets back into my name. And that's what creates that asset protection benefit. And then that's what also creates the estate tax benefit, right? Because if I don't, if I retain the right to pull it back into my name, I haven't really given it away. But if I give it, I have a transfer to an irrevocable trust where I don't retain the right to pull the assets back, then essentially I've divested myself for those assets so that I can start making strategic gifts for the benefit of family members that result in estate tax savings. Interesting. Okay. Got so it. I guess that then leads to a major risk for the irrevocable trust. So what if you... I don't know, pick somebody as a beneficiary or put somebody on it that you then have a serious falling out with for <laughs> make up a reason, right? Yeah. Are you uh, are you out of luck? Is that it? Like you said, you can't unilaterally remove assets. That maybe implies there's some, you know, method you can do it. Like yeah. it's a big what if, right? That's that's an astute uh, observation, Taylor. And the answer is yes. So so it depends on how you draft the terms of the trust, but uh, oftentimes trusts are drafted to build in flexibility for changing circumstances. So now as the creator, so irrevocable, a lot of times people assume that irrevocable means that's completely set in stone. You can't do anything otherwise, but an irrevocable trust, again, kind of to what I said before, really just means that you as the creator don't, can't just undo the trust on your own, right? You might be able to undo it with the help of a trustee or with other beneficiaries if everybody agrees, right? Then the, the trust can be collapsed and undone. Or you can um, you can give the trustee sometimes certain powers to make changes or adjustments, or you can appoint somebody called a trust protector, which is like a third-party overseer of the trust and give the trust protector kind of powers to make changes or adjustments to the trust as well. So, um, so there's a whole host of ways to kind of undo or change an irrevocable trust to uh, comport with either changing circumstances or changing desires. So. Interesting. Okay. So you're not completely up a creek without a paddle in that yeah. case. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But it is a common misperception. A lot of times, you know, a, a lot of clients, you know, they, they have some apprehension about utilizing your revocable trust until they understand kind of what their options. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I've, I'll, I'll openly admit, I've already said it, that this is definitely a topic that I am uh, not particularly educated on or naive or what have you. I mean, I'm 32. I don't like thinking about my own mortality and hopefully sure. I don't have to deal with it for, you know, a good long while, at least, you know, a, a while from now. Is, is don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. But that is the, <laughs> that is the next question is like, I mean, the, the, the obvious answer is tomorrow to the following question, but when is a reasonable time for an investor to start thinking about these things? I mean, yeah, you could, I could be in a car accident later tonight, right? Heaven forbid, but it could happen. Um, but are you uh, you seeing clients like saying, you know, start thinking about this like in your 40s or maybe when you have kids or you have to really think about potential um, 
you know, beneficiaries to your assets once you pass away. I mean, what are your, you know, let's say be reasonable thoughts about that. Cause the, the, the quick, easy answer is do it now. Right. For yeah, everybody. totally. So I'm not going to prescribe like a hard and fast rule other than mm-hmm. this, right. Uh, maybe I'll share with my audience kind of like the decision-making points to think about. Right. Great. So like, so, so the, the obvious answer is anyone can benefit from an estate plan and, and they could do it right away. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and the reason why I say that is even if you don't have any assets and if you don't really have, let's just say have any particular desire for your assets to go to any particular place, still oftentimes a good idea to have some basic estate planning in place. For example, right. Uh, a basic healthcare directive so that if you're incapacitated, right? Even if you have no assets, make sure the right people, the people that you want, have the authority to make decisions on your behalf without having to go to court, right? That's simple. That's easy. Pretty straightforward, right? Um, or like a, a power of attorney, right? Who can access your bank accounts if you're sick? Who can pay your bills, right? Et cetera. Like those are two basic things that even if you have nothing are probably good things to have. But when do people tend to get motivated to do estate planning because a lot of it is based on motivation, right? Finding the motivation to actually do the, do the work because procrastination, it's easy, right? It's easy to do. And so, so major life events, like having a child, if you're buying real estate, if you buy a primary residence, you probably have an estate plan, right? If you're buying rental properties, probably should have an estate plan. If you have lots of money or have built significant wealth, probably want an estate plan, right? So those are, those are some big kind of life events by which you would start thinking about those things. But yeah, I mean, I would just say that the sooner you find the motivation, the better. And when you find the motivation, hang on to it because it's (laughs) it's easy to, it's easy to procrastinate for sure. But you know, the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, the case for estate planning or the, the case for planning generally, right. Is like the clients that are coming to me for the first time to do their estate planning or, or their asset protection planning, right. Um, in their twenties and thirties tend to be disproportionately more successful than the clients that are coming to me for the first time in their seventies and eighties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. And, and not to say that the planning miraculously, right. It's not causational, but it is correlated, right? Because if you are planning oriented, you're, you will tend to be more successful, right? And so if you have kind of an inclination to start planning in general, I would say lean into it because again, these are just good habits to have for going forward in life and will in most cases help you to be more successful or financially successful, I suppose, than, or I would even say financially, spiritually, right? Like uh, healthier and more successful if you plan, right? And so however you define it, planning will help you get there. As they say, or saying that's going around today that is a memento mori, right? Remember you're mortal or remember your death, right? It's going to happen <laughs> to all of us. <laughs> and it's- yeah. Planning and execution too. A lot of you know, younger people who are really good at planning and thinking about this are are executing on it as well because they're they're calling you. They're not just making right. plans; they're they're going and doing it. And and that would be, I would guess that many in your audience are that way, right? Because they're out there doing it, building their wealth and building their real estate portfolios, and they're not just hemming and hawing and sitting on their hands. So <laughs> again, lean into it, guys. If if you if you have that inclination, so absolutely. Great. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. 
And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Brian, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me with it. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Woo. You know, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, the thing that first comes to mind is... Uh, <laughs> I bought a uh, I bought a couple rental properties uh, shortly after I graduated from law school, uh, right during the heart of the recession. So oh, nice, <laughs> good timing. Yeah, so I feel like I'm a little spoiled now. Like uh, you know, buying those properties, I mean, it, they've done really, really well for us, and we got them for a song, song and a dance, and uh, um, that's that's what jumps out at me is is uh, is is my first couple real estate investments. Uh, all turned out very nicely based on the timing. And so, um, yeah. So, that, and then also I think that the benefit of just kind of learning, uh, learning how to be a landlord and learning how to be a property owner. Um, those were, I think, really great uh, lessons to learn. So, yeah, absolutely. And and with the business that you're in, you can relate more, I think, probably to your real estate investor clients as a real estate investor yourself, which I'm sure many, you know, estate planning asset protection attorneys actually aren't. They're not in the investing business, I would yep. say. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. <laughs> what is the worst investment you ever made? Oh man. Um, so I'm so the one that kind of jumps out at me is like I bought a like uh I bought some uh what was it? It was a oil and gas investment. Uh, it was like a, like a, like a private placement deal, um, out in Texas and, um, you know, it was an illiquid investment and they all was well for probably a year. And then all of a sudden, uh, gas prices went down and then, mm. and then it failed. To, I think they're liquidating everything this year, but, um, but yeah, it basically just went from, you know, pretty productive investment to nothing. And, uh, in a pretty short period of time. And so um, that's probably the one that kind of jumps out at me as being a bad investment, I guess, other than just kind of like any frivolous spending that I've done <laughs> over, the, over the years. But but luckily, there's not too much of that going on. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah. That's good. And yeah, I've, I've heard 
both uh, major success and, and major uh, horror stories with oil and gas well investments. They can either do really well or just end up being absolutely nothing or kind of in between. But yeah. many of them do go bust with commodity yeah. prices. Yeah. So. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing that I've learned is that um, the more you give, the more you get, right? And so kind of going through life outwardly focused on the people around me um, and figuring out how I can best bring value to them without necessarily focusing on the value that it brings to me has tended to make me the most satisfied in my work and has also, I think, translated to me being much more successful because I think that people can sense when you have their best interests at heart. I hope, and I, I hope that my clients feel that way. Um, but, uh, I'll leave it to them to, to, (laughs) to confirm that. But, um, but I definitely feel much more fulfilled when I operate from a place of giving, uh, as opposed to kind of me first attitude. So. Um, that's something that I learned. I was blessed enough to learn relatively early on in my practice. And it's uh, really kind of solidified, uh, you know, and helped me grow uh, into the person that I am today is kind of really just kind of hanging on to that philosophy. So awesome. I love it. Well, yeah. Brian, it's been great talking with you once again. Thanks for coming back to the show and especially entertaining some of my, I'm just going to keep saying naive questions about estate planning. And uh, hopefully the listeners learned something today. I know I sure did. If yeah. folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about your practice or, you know, what have you, where can they track you down? Sure. Um, so you can uh, uh, you can email me at uh, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at Barth, B as in boy, A as in Apple, R as in Robert, T as in Thomas, H as in Harry, attorneys, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S dot com. Or you can uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. So uh, my name is Brian Chow, C-H-O-U. You can look me up and shoot me a message there as well. Great. Well, it's been fantastic talking with you once again. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much because that helps other people learn about the show because it helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. It gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. No matter what podcast app you use, we look forward to seeing you back here. All you have to do is go look up the show, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Appreciate you tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.